Greetings. We offer these podcasts freely, and your support really makes a difference. To make a donation, please visit tarbrock.com. Namaste. Welcome, friends. Countless people live with shame and distress about their eating. I know it well myself through my personal history, and this is our theme today. And I'm speaking with my dear friend and colleague, Dr. Judson Brewer. And Judd is a scientist, a professor, and author of The Hunger Habit. That's his his new book and many other groundbreaking books. He's a thought leader in the field of habit change. And he's also, importantly, a decades-long practitioner of mindfulness. So in this conversation, we explore how combining mindfulness practice with a basic understanding of habit change science can free us from unhealthy eating habits. So we, we also look at the larger societal forces that drive overconsumption, as well as the shame that eating behaviors can evoke. I always learn from Judd and find inspiration in what he offers, and I trust you will too. Many blessings. So good morning and welcome, Judd. It's great to see you. Yeah, so we're getting to talk about something that is very alive for both of us today and kind of circles around this beautiful new book you've got coming out at the end of this month, uh, The Hunger Habit. So I thought maybe just to ask you, uh, personally and professionally, what drew you to this? Mm, you want the truth? <laughs> <laughs> you could start off by saying some other things, but no, yeah, no, let's go for I it. I don't know anything else. So the truth is that I have a wonderful editor uh, named Caroline Sutton, and uh, she was the editor for my Unwinding Anxiety book, and she, we had a conversation, and she said, "Judd, I think it's a time for a book on eating." And I said, "I'm not that person to write that book." <laughs> and we had a long conversation, and she said, "Don't you see a lot of patients, um, you know, who struggle with eating habits?" And I said, "Yeah." And she said, "Don't you have this program where you've done research?" And she's like, "Yeah." I'm like, yeah. She's like, so who else is going to write this book? And she got me. Because <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I'm a, I'm a relatively, you know, skinny white guy. You know, I shouldn't be writing this book. And she's like, you know, you are the person that should be writing this book. And so we talked and we iterated and, and the book was became written <laughs> and so it was a wonderful learning journey for me and i also want to say this isn't this isn't really about me or my research it supports the concepts in the book but it's really about these beautiful stories that i had the privilege of being able to uh help bring to the world and these stories are my some of my patients and some of the people using our our eat right now program and it's it's really they are the ones that bring this book alive because it's their lived experience and all that they've gone through 
from, you know, uh, one person was addicted to eating fast food, another, you know, this whole dieting and binge eating thing, another just mindless eating, you know, the whole spectrum. Um, and, and their stories are so beautiful. So it's, it's really, this is really their book. It's not my book. Mm, mm. Well, and in working with them, you have been exposed to the depth of that suffering. Um, mm. I, I'm speaking, I'll be speaking more from a, having knowing it on the inside out, but there is such huge suffering. It's so pervasive in the society around feeling addicted to certain ways of eating, mm -hmm. habits that people I have hated myself for. So maybe a way to start, one of the things you begin with, which I just found so powerful and helpful is most of us are going through life telling ourselves we should be different and mm -hmm. that we should eat differently. We should be of a different way. We should have more control. We should have more willpower. How does the word should completely trap us? Yeah. I'm a big fan of corny jokes. So here's one. We should all over ourselves, right? Yeah. yeah. And th this is a really interesting aspect of society because one, it says, hey, you know, this, you just need to have more willpower. There's something wrong with you. It's not, you know, the formulas and, and the formulas that I learned in medical school are still true today. You know, it's like calories in, calories out. And, and I like that one because I can remember it. It's pretty short. <laughs> But it's it's true if somebody eats fewer calories uh, and they burn some off through exercise that you know it's it uh, it's going to reduce weight right that's that's a true thing and the dot 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 the assumption is that somebody just needs to do it <laughs> <laughs> they they didn't so these are people who know all the the intellectual stuff but they're now down in the trenches trying to work with people who have this like shame that they can't just follow the formula you know it's simple what's what's wrong with me and this is actually something that i also another shout out to to caroline in another conversation we had she articulated this so beautifully where it's like with anxiety for example it feels like this is something that happens to us whereas with eating it's something that's wrong with us if we can't control our eating so i just want to state if somebody stops listening right now it's not their fault. It's not our fault. There's not something that's wrong with us. It's that our brain is trying to help us survive. And in this environment where everybody's trying to get us addicted to things, it's fighting against a lot of forces. The wires get crossed a little bit in terms of these survival mechanisms. And then we go down this rabbit hole of willpower and then get stuck and you know and exhausted and feel like there's you know we can't do anything about it but the truth is that if we know how our minds work we can learn to work with our minds and the punchline is it's not about willpower and that's what our neuroscience research shows mm. okay so say a little more about that because in this society, like the idea of putting out an effort and if you really try hard, you know, you'll you'll make it, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Um, except for Carlin, who says, my theory is 
no pain, no pain, which is one of my favorite quotes in all time history. But <laughs> but mostly we're told that, you know, on some level, if we're not, uh, you know, making it on this one, that, you know, we're not trying hard enough. So how come willpower doesn't work? And what is it we need to know about how the brain works so we can begin to work with the brain? Yes. So I don't know, I'm not a historian, so, um, you know, caveat everything that I'm about to say. It, the best, you know, in my in my internet searches of like, where did this thing come from? You know, there's this age of reason, Descartes, I think, therefore I am. But even before that, uh, there's a relief on the Parthenon in Greece where it shows this rider on a horse and the horse depicts the passions and the rider depicts reason. And so there's this struggle between the passions and reason that goes back probably even before that. But th those are just some signposts that this question has been around for, for a long time. And, you know, what's stronger, a, a horse or a rider? You know, a, a horse can buck a rider anytime it wants to. And I think that also gives a nod to how strong, let's call it, our passions are, which include things like you know, it, uh, cravings, but also include very important things like our emotions, right? Our passions, our emotions are really, really strong. So, you know, we, we could certainly point a finger at, you know, where, where this started. And, but also this was way before the term neuroscience even emerged. And this idea that like, we're just assuming that willpower is exists and is a strong force and we just need to know how to use it that's that's kind of an assumption that we, that's been baked into western society for a long time along comes neuroscience this baby you know in the i don't remember when the term was first coined but 70s 80s you know it's a pretty young field right and and it's not that neuroscience is the end all be all but it started asking you know, some people and probably people before neuroscientists started asking these questions like, well, if willpower exists where, you know, it should be a predictor of outcomes. And when you look at it, there was a, there are two well-known researchers from the seventies, Rascorla and Wagner, and they actually came up with a formula uh, for what's called reinforcement learning. And it's a pretty simple formula and it doesn't include willpower as a variable. Mm interesting huh mm. and and this formula is still at play today we've used it in our studies because it's it's like the one to use you know some um some tweaks but it basically says you know this is this is about looking at um hab basically how habits get formed and the the idea is that our brains, and now we know actually some of the brain structures involved in this. So, so for example, there's a part of the brain called the orbitofrontal cortex that determines and stores the reward value of, of behaviors. And with, with regard to eating, this is really helpful from a survival standpoint, but also just an efficiency standpoint. And the way that that works is it kind of has a hierarchy of different foods. From a survival standpoint, it's going to preference foods that have higher caloric values because you know, we didn't have, you know, our ancient ancestors didn't have refrigerators, didn't have steady, you know, didn't have food delivery, you know, didn't have 24 seven restaurants. And so 
when and didn't have a steady source of food. And so they had to be able to pack up on the calories so that they could um, survive the famines. This is where, in, in, interestingly, if you look at fat, fatness, it was actually a sign of prosperity, <laughs> you know, because it's it's like good for you. You're going to survive the famine. <laughs> you know, yeah. we can talk later about how it's the opposite now. But our bodies are like, hey, pack this on. So they're going to preference, say, chocolate over broccoli, okay? Because they're assume our our survival brains are assuming that that's not we don't have a steady source of chocolate and broccoli. So they they set up this reward hierarchy, and then when given a choice between two things, our brain's going to be like, yeah, chocolate. And then for me, add in a little sea salt, some cayenne, make that chocolate at about 80%. <laughs> oh yeah. You know, it's, it's like, I can dial that, that bliss factor in about what my preferences are. And everybody can do that. Some people like milk chocolate more than dark chocolate, but you get the idea. So we set up these reward hierarchies so that, you know, we, our brains can help us survive, but also so that we can make quick decisions. So imagine having to, you know, you, let's say you go to a restaurant or, uh, and, and you look at the menu and you're like, I've never had any of these things on this thing. I don't know what I want. We'd really, we'd have to sample everything to determine what we like the most. So fortunately we can build up that reservoir of information in our brain and be like, oh, I like, you know, I liked this last time. So I'm going to preference that, you know, in a restaurant over something that I don't know, for example. And so there are all these things baked into that, that help us make decisions quickly. And so we can see from a survival standpoint, it makes sense from a efficiency standpoint, it makes sense. And then you try to kind of live that in everyday life where we've got constant access to food. Most of us mm -hmm. have the privilege mm -hmm. of having constant access to food. And on top of that, food is engineered. I wouldn't even call it food, but a lot of these things are in some things like Doritos. Is that really food? Cheetos? Definitely not. <laughs> in my opinion. <laughs> And this isn't to demonize Doritos or Cheetos. Some people absolutely love Doritos. Some people love Cheetos. Great. Um, but what I'm highlighting here is that the food industry has really, you know, they have food engineers that are working overtime to have things like a vanishing caloric density. What does that mean? Well, Cheetos melts in your mouth for a reason because it says to your brain, hey, did I just eat something? No, it's gone. <laughs> I didn't even chew it. Oh, maybe put something else in your mouth, like the same thing. And so we're, you know, we're putting things in our mouths and our body's like, you didn't need anything. You didn't need anything, you know? And so they've got these tricks that they can play on our minds that say, keep eating, keep eating, keep eating, you know? And, and this isn't, this isn't completely new. Uh, do you know when Lay's came up with their potato chip slogan, bet you can't eat just one? 1963. But the mm. same year that Weight Watchers was founded, mm. probably a coincidence, but mm. I just think that's interesting. It's, yeah, it's a good factoid. <laughs> but what I'm hearing you say, and this is to me, it's so fascinating, is that we're still operating off of a survival brain that is completely rigged to go for calories, mm -hmm. even when it's not what's actually going to serve our survival right now. And you have a great quote that says hunger is a scream fullness is a whisper it's like the survival brain is going to grab our attention and run the show and we are not as good at detecting what's actually happening yes and yeah absolutely we are not and so our poor survival brains are 
you know, pitted against this modern society that is just designed to get us to consume, you know? And so that's, it's tough. And there is fortunately our exquisitely beautiful and wonderful brains. Uh, and I'm, and I want to separate the brain from the body. Like it's, it's our minds, let's put it that way, which is a, this very embodied thing are extremely, they're just so wise and powerful. And the problem is that we just don't listen to them. You know, I, I have a quote in the book from a James Joyce short story called The Painful Case. And um, I think I first heard this quote from John Cubitson, so shout out to him. But, you know, it, it, it starts with this character named Mr. Duffy. And I think the, the first line of the story is, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. And I, I include that in the book because it's a beautiful example of how we are walking around disembodied and we're not we're not listening to these very wise bodies that have a lot to say, especially when it comes to eating. You know, a, a, as an example, I was working in my clinic with uh, doing group medical visits uh, where it's a, like a, a small group of patients all together uh, where they all had shared uh, the the experience of binge eating disorder. I don't like the word disorder, but here we go, medical terms. Um, and it took me about a, a month or longer to realize I was missing something. And I couldn't put my finger on it. And you know, we kept having these weekly groups. I'm like, what am I missing? What am I missing? And it turns out, so one of the clues was that one of the uh, one of the women said, you know, I have an urge and I eat. And I, I just at first assumed that, well, she was hungry. And, and I said, but I was like, wait a minute, there's something more in that. I don't want to make any assumptions here. What do you mean by that? And she's like, well, I have an urge and I eat. And I said, well, how do you know if it's from hunger or from, you know, stress or an emotion or boredom or something like that? And she's like, what are you talking about? I have an urge and I eat. <laughs> and so she had in this, and then everybody's nodding their heads and they're like, yeah, yeah. What she said, what she said. That it turns out that for so many people, they lose that ability to pay attention to their body mm -hmm. and know the difference between what's, and now there are terms for this because this is so common. So know the difference between hedonic hunger, which is like this emotion-based hunger, and it's not even real hunger because they're not physiologically hunger, but hungry, but this highlights the 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 other one, which is homeostatic hunger where our body is out of homeostasis it's out of balance and our body is giving us a hunger signal to get us back in balance and says hey you know time for some calories and so the homeostatic hunger this this really exquisite survival mechanism gets shut down in terms of not listened to and it's when it's constantly ignored then we live, we become that Mr. Duffy. We live this short distance from our bodies and then we don't trust them. We don't listen to them. And we don't even, when, when we start listening, it's, it's like a foreign language. We don't know what they're saying until we can learn that or relearn that language. Hmm. So when I think of the title of your book, The Hunger Habit, it's really you're talking a lot about the habit of operating off of emotional hunger and the habit of not listening to the homeostatic messages from our body that are telling us when we're really hungry. And so what I'd like to have us look at is that 
you know, to change a habit and make new choices, you have to be able to pause and begin to learn how to listen. And, mm -hmm. and most people feel like when there's that, oh, I have an urge and I eat, there's not much consciousness or mindfulness that, oh, I should pause. It's challenging when craving's strong, you know, our minds are very uh, focused. We want what we want. So I'd like to have you talk to us a bit about how to interrupt patterns with awareness so we can begin to reconnect with our body. Mm. Yes. So let's, let's explore that. First, I want to highlight something that you just said. When we have a very strong itch, that natural urge is to scratch it. And that's, you know, I don't know many things, if anything, that is a stronger itch <laughs> than, than an, you know, than a strong craving to eat, mm -hmm. eat some food, for example. It's certainly, and it's a, it's a, that craving is, uh, I see this a lot in my patients who struggle with addiction whether it's food or something else, that urge is all consuming. And so I just want to highlight how challenging this can be. So I think of this in over the last couple of decades now, uh, we've been kind of just collecting data to see what that process of change looks like. And the good news is there is one, <laughs> you know, we've had some pretty solid results from our, our studies. Um, you know, we, we developed this eat right now apps, um, you know, with the idea that it could help people, but also, uh, it's a really good vehicle for studying things because it's a standardized treatment delivery. So we know exactly what they're getting, uh, and, you know, we're studying, uh, therapists or things like that. It's hard. There's variability there's personal fit, things like that. And it, and it can be really challenging to do those types of studies in, 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 you know, living human beings. So just want to highlight the challenge for all the folks that do that really important work. Um, for us, it got easier because we could say, well, we know exactly what they're getting. We know how much, you know, what the dose effect is because we can see how many modules they complete and things like that. And so we've collected a lot of information over the years and we, we kind of found this stepwise process. Uh, where the first step is, is somebody has to become aware of whatever that, like, let's call it the hunger habit, whatever that hunger habit is. And I want to highlight that, you know, that we use that specifically because a lot of, you know, whether it's overeating, whether it's uh, eating mindlessly, whether it's stress eating, you know, there are so many things that trigger us to eat if we can't see what the process is, we can't work with it. So that's really the first step. And I think of it as, you know, mapping out these, these habit loops and the more research I do, the simpler things get, which is great because it makes it easier to remember. <laughs> and so, you know, with any, with any habit, uh, you know, it's, it's a trigger of behavior and a result that, that um, sets that habit up. But really the most important thing to pay attention to is what's what's the behavior. If we can start to identify it first and bring it to light, it helps us be able to see what triggered it. And also I want to highlight the trigger is the least important part here. So even if we don't notice what triggered it, it's not that important, but we, we can see, oh, I'm eating or I'm about to reach for something. And then we can also look at the result of the behavior and that relationship is critical which also, you know, goes all the way back to Buddhist psychology, 
you know, the, you know, the Buddha talked a lot about cause and effect. I never really understood what that meant until, you know, I kind of synced it up with what I understood in, in science, which is, you know, reinforcement learning or reward-based learning is based on how rewarding a behavior is. So if we can identify the behavior, let's say, well, you pick one, what, what, what example would you like to use? Overeating, stress eating, um, mindless eating, pick any, we'll start there. Yeah. Um, uh, stress eating. Okay. Anxious, uncomfortable, want to get away from it, want to soothe it, want to put it underneath. Okay. So let's start there. And so if, if the trigger is stress, right, as you pointed out, stress is uncomfortable. And so our brain says, this is uncomfortable, make this go away, which goes back to our survival mechanisms of um, saying, hey, you know, if you put your hand on something hot, pull your hand away type of thing. That's That can be reflexive, but we can internalize that learning like, hey, when something's unpleasant, make it go away. So we're stressed and then we eat something, not because we're hungry, but this is the hedonic hunger kicking in. So we eat something and then we soothe ourselves or is a lot of my patients describe it. They numb themselves uh, when they're from that, whatever the emotional pain is that they're trying to get away from. So that numbing is reinforcing for the habit because it feels better than feeling the pain. And I say this when they don't, because they don't have, they haven't learned the mechanisms to actually hold the pain. So somebody can hold the pain, the emotional pain. I'm not saying hold on to a hot rock that's going to burn you. <laughs> yeah, <we're>, mm -hmm. <laughs> we can drop that one. <laughs> but if it's emotional pain, a lot of us are taught to distract, avoid, numb, right? And and these these uh these phone, <laughs> these, I like I love Cornell West. He says these weapons of mass distraction, you know, because <laughs> or good. these. Yeah. Or these, these billboards that are in our pocket that we pay for, you know, that are constantly getting us to like consume and distract ourselves from our experience. All of these are decreasing our ability to have good distress tolerance, right. To be with our emotions. So long story short, unpleasantness says, Hey, eat some food. And then we we numb ourselves. We avoid, we distract, we feel better. And that's what drives the process. So if we can start to map it out and see, oh, I'm in this habit loop. One, it helps us see what's happening. And two, it helps us see, oh, this is just my brain trying to help me survive. This is not my fault, right? Habits generally are helpful. And here's one that just kind of got off the rails a little bit, you know, miswired. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So we become aware of the stress and that we're noticing what's happening. And we just pause there and recognize, oh, this is the positive reinforcement habit, and this is not my fault. This is the way the brain is wired. One of the things I wonder about that is because when I go inside my own, you know, I spent a good number of years, I think, with an active diagnosable eating disorder, and then other years where, you know, wouldn't have been so so visible, but it was, you know, just part of my psyche. One of the most predominant things I noticed is it wasn't just the urge about going to eat. And it was like throughout the day, the thoughts just circling around food and circling around my habit of food. And so it was much harder to have a discrete incident to interrupt because it was so mm. a much a part of my ongoing uh, operation. I'm glad you say that because for so many people, 
thoughts about food are all consuming. Like it, it just takes all of their bandwidth all day. And there's a, there's a woman named Anne in my, that I describe in the book. And this was, this was the case for her. And actually Jack probably <laughs> everybody, except for the guy that mindlessly eat, ate <laughs> where um, it's just like, it's constant, you know, and, mm-hmm. and it also highlights, you know, I love this quote. I'm sure you, um, you, you're well familiar with this, you know, what we resist persists. And so if we are setting ourselves up to be like, I got to resist this craving, I got to do this. So uh, Jackie in the book describes this as the craving monster. And she said, you know, basically like whenever she ran away or tried to fight with it, it just, it only fed it, it made it bigger and it, it eventually it would always get her. And so, you know, people spend all day just like either consumed with like, oh, this, I want this, I'm going to have this, or I can't have this, <laughs> you know? And, and so that, that resistance, it just builds that persistence around, you know, eventually um, succumbing to it. Totally makes sense. And part of what you talk about as you begin to describe how to interrupt with awareness is beyond just the moment where there's an acting out, but start to develop this habit through the day. Um, You say five times a day, but it's what I call the sacred pause, even if it's just for a few moments. Mm. But just to pause and say, you know, what am I aware of right now? That's one inquiry. I often will say, what is happening inside me right now? Because it brings the attention inward um, I actually have two questions, and they 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 bring together the fullness of mindfulness, which is, you know, what's happening inside me right now, and can I let this be? Can I be with this? And what happens is it drops under the thoughts. I mean, what's happening may be the thoughts of when am I going to eat? What am I going to eat? But then underneath that, at least for a few moments, I'm building tolerance of a little bit more of that raw sense of. Um, unease or anxiety or whatever but you named it so perfectly it's we're doing this because we have not yet built up that tolerance which actually becomes a kind of freedom a spaciousness that Mm -hmm. lets different experiences move through without having to react so um, you have a, a number of tools that you talk about if we can wake up enough to pause how we can start shifting that hierarchy that says this is the thing that's going to make me feel good and ways of kind of challenging it so can you speak to that a bit sure and so just to give people a a roadmap here there are three steps that we've i don't i don't this power of threes is crazy because yet again you know we're not saying hey force this into a function of three when we do the research. It just happens to be when we do this qualitative, you know, we did this great group-based research study. My uh, former graduate student, Ariel Beckia, led some of this, but it's like, it happens to show up in in yet another three. So the first step we've already talked about is, you know, we we can formally think of this as mapping out a habit loop. I think informally, we can just really be identifying what the behavior is. And, you know, is it, I think of it as the why, what, and how, like, why am I reaching for food, right? Which can kind of identify what flavor <laughs> of hungry it is. You know, am I actually hungry? Is this boredom? You know, is this an emotion? Is this just a habit type of thing? 
And then the, the, what, what am I reaching for? Is it comfort food? There's a reason it's called comfort food. And then how am I eating? Am I just like consuming it mindlessly? Um, but we can really just highlight, you know, what basically the, what's the mechanism, what's driving this. So let's say stress eating as an example that we've been using. So that's the first step. The second step is very paradoxical. And you mentioned these tools. The tools are actually mostly in the third step. And the second step is something that people, I think, naturally often skip because in our Western mindset, they just think, okay, here's the problem. I got to find a solution. And so they go to the Tarbrock website and they're like, hey, here's a bunch of great tools. Let me just use these. And I see people face plant quite a bit here. Why do they do this? Because they think I'm just going to do this. You know, I just need to use rain. I just need to do something to make this craving go away. Or and and they're getting back into this resistance mindset of like I just gotta I just gotta fight this. Um, the second step is, and again, this is if I had to sum up, or if I if I were only allowed to know one little tiny piece of the Buddhist teachings, it would, in you know, I had to pick one. This is the one I would pick hands down where there are a number of suttas where the Buddha talks about exploring gratification to its end. I had no idea what that meant when I first started reading these, but when I look at the, what my patients and the folks in our programs are talking about, it totally makes sense. So basically he says, you know, it wasn't until I explored gratification to its end that knowledge and vision arose. Like, so he's basically saying, you know, and on the night of his enlightenment, he wasn't in deep samadhi or some type of meditation. He was actually contemplating this thing called dependent origination, which I also couldn't understand for the longest time. But the idea here is we've got to, we've got to see how much gratification, right? How rewarding in modern neuroscience terms, how rewarding a behavior is. And if it's giving us, you know, if we, if we squeeze that fruit and it's giving us some juice, we're going to keep squeezing it. Right. But when we explore that gratification to its end, when there's no more juice and we realize this isn't actually juice, we become disenchanted. And so the Buddha talks about this, um, becoming disenchanted with old behaviors. I say this is critical because it is, (laughs) and he laid it out so beautifully The idea is if we're no longer, if we can't see that something's rewarding, our brain is going to naturally say, hey, that's not rewarding. Stop doing that. And it's not going to say stop, like force yourself to stop. It's going to say, are you sure you want to do that? There's no, there's no juice in that. You're still squeezing that thing and there's no juice. That's what a habit is, right? And we see this with eating where if somebody doesn't really clearly see and feel it's really feel it's not see because our feeling body is much stronger than our thinking brain if we don't feel those results of our behaviors we're never going to change them because that's what habits are all about i think of it as set and forget you set the reward value of a habit and if you don't um, bring some inquiry in if you don't discern that it's no longer rewarding then you're going to keep doing it so let's use can i ask a question about please, that please um in my experience, that when I could do that reflection on, is this really gratifying? Like, what am I getting from this? You mm. know, and, you know, and run through and sense how will it feel in the future? And that kind of a process of inquiry, which I, I like you, totally value, um, wasn't 
ever able to do it when I was in the grip. Mm -hmm. Yes. Because yes. emotion, emotions override the cognitive capacities to be able to sense to the heart of gratification. So yes. I could do it um, when I was in another state. And then, mm -hmm. and that was really powerful because for me, I found, you know, it became so clear yeah. that it was sustaining misery and that, that it, that the, the being consumed with thoughts about consuming was taking my life away. Yes. And then, um, it turned into almost a process of aspiration and prayer, Jed, where that just, if you, that clarity made me pray, you know, like mm -hmm. the longing in me to wake up and be free, pray to that, you know, that there may be some, you know, the compassion and clarity needed to be able to um, shift habits. But I'm just naming that it, it, we can't expect much when we're in the grip. You know? I'm, I'm, yes. I'm so glad you named that. And I, I write a little bit about that in the hungry habit. I think of these as rear view mirror moments. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. But this is this is really again not my idea. It's the Buddhist idea where he was, and there was a sutta where he's talking to his son Rahula. You probably know this one, but for folks that don't, you know, Rahula is asking his his father, the Buddha, like, "Hey, you know, how how basically how can I do skillful? How can I become more skillful in my actions?" And the Buddha basically says, "Well, reflect on your actions before you do them, and if they're wholesome, go for it. If they're unwholesome, you know." Check to see how gratifying that might be, basically, and see if that helps you become disenchanted and not do them. And then he says, you know, I get it. Beforehand, you might miss it. You're right in the throes of it. And he's like, so if you can, reflect on it while you're doing it. And like you're highlighting, you know, that's really hard to do for most of us, especially at the beginning of learning how our minds work. And so the Buddha's like, don't worry, you know, until you nail that one, we got another one afterwards and he says so reflect on it afterwards so that's why i call these review mirror moments because it's like you know something crazy happens on the highway and we just like avoid some you know like somebody pulls out in front of us and we swerve quickly and avoid an accident we do all of that and we're not be like well let me be mindful of this moment right <laughs> <laughs> crash <laughs> yeah exactly um you know so we we have to you know in the moment our, our body and our brain is going to do something often pretty quickly or we're going to get caught up in it, but we can reflect on it afterwards. And I call this, um, you know, these rear view mirror moments, because if we can recall what it was like afterwards, when the dust settles, as long as we can recall the embodied experience, we can learn from it. And there's a bonus to this because we can do that over and over and over. So, you know, when it's like, for me, I was addicted to gummy worms, right? So I can still recall what it's like to eat gummy worms. <laughs> Let's just say that, you know, not a spoiler for the book. Gummy but, worms. I'm just yep. repeating, you were addicted to gummy worms. Yes. <laughs> I think that's a great headline. <laughs> yeah, we each have our thing. <laughs> yeah. And I couldn't have them, couldn't have them in the house, right? Because I'd eat the whole bag. And, um, you know, for me, so just walking through that process for me. Right. And often, you know, it was at night stress eating type of thing. So I started paying attention as I, so I'd look at him and I'm like, this looks like a fishing lure. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, they throw these things in the water, but I'm going to put it in my mouth. Okay. And a fish so, wouldn't go for it. Right. Right. Way. Yeah. Fish are like, are you kidding? That looks like a gummy <laughs> right. worm or whatever. Um, so I would, I started paying attention as I was eating these things. And the first one, I was like, 
this tastes kind of like petroleum. <laughs> it's like the sickly sweet, the mouthfeel wasn't quite right. And then, so I became disenchanted with gummy worms. It didn't take a long time to do that, but I had to pay attention. Right. And then, um, you know, and then I compared those to eating blueberries where, you know, for me, I won't go into the details, but blueberries for me are like, boom, it's a no brainer because these, this food co-evolved with us to be the perfect, you know, for me, the perfect mouthfeel, the pop when you've got a plump, you know, crisp blueberry, maybe you never know if it's going to be a little sweeter, a little sour, you know, it's like some intermittent reinforcement there. It's just like the perfect <laughs> for me, it's the perfect food. And so using that as an example, going back to this, you know, this disenchantment thing, we've got to see, we've got to feel what the results are of these behaviors before we become disenchanted with them. And that's what helps us step away from the grip of them without any willpower. And so just to bring this back to the science, you know, these Rescorla and Wagner in their equation, no willpower needed, they have this error term that is critically dependent upon one thing, which is my favorite word. It's called awareness. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. If you don't pay attention when you eat something, you're not going to see how rewarding it is. And so for me, when I was in the habit of just downing a bag of gummy worms, I was reaching for the next one while one was still in my mouth. I wasn't paying attention, right? Mm -hmm. And so here I have to pay attention. And you know, if people want to know the science here. If I see that it's not as gratifying as I expected, I get what's called a negative prediction error, meaning it's not as good as expected. And that's where the disenchantment comes in, right? So this, I love this because the Buddha described this way before science, the term science was even around, maybe, I don't know. Um, but it's like, oh, you know, cause and effect, cause and effect, cause and effect. You're, you, and we get this dopamine spritz and we learn, oh, this is not as rewarding as I thought. And it makes it much easier to step away from that behavior. But, and we actually did a study uh, with our Eat Right Now app and we found, are you ready for this? It only takes 10 to 15 times of somebody paying attention as they overeat for that reward value to drop below zero and for them to start shifting that behavior. So, which makes sense from an evolutionary perspective, we don't have 20 times to get chased by a tiger to learn that it's dangerous. We have to learn that pretty quickly. So if we pay attention and we can see very clearly and feel, I should say, we can feel very, very quickly, oh, this, this is not rewarding, it becomes much easier to let go of that. So that's the, that's the whole of the second step. And we can see whether you look at Buddhist psychology or look at modern science, they're saying the same thing. So that is so helpful to realize that when we really get how gratifying something is, we can choose differently. And what I want to do is kind of deepen the inquiry a bit of what gets in the way in the sense that you, you highlighted the word feel, that we really have to feel the impact. And many people are eating because of trauma. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that, that it's just, they're so correlated that mm -hmm. the trauma, you know, it's just intolerable experience and then eating helps to um, buffer it. And so that, um, and a lot of the tools and the, and when I say tools, I mean the awareness practices that 
help us to recognize what's gratifying and make new choices have to do with being able to feel our bodies. And I'm mm. going to ask you to talk about that some more. Um, because as you as Mr. Duffy exemplifies, we are not so in our bodies. The more trauma, the more dissociated. So it's actually hard to sense even distinguish gratifying, not gratifying, and actually feel in the body what's going on. Mm -hmm. So I, two questions and one related to that. What if it's difficult to feel the body? Because so much is about learning to be able to be awake in the body and distinguish between the hungers and so on. Mm -hmm. Or what if as you're trying to get somebody to pay more attention, trauma's activated? So those mm -hmm. are kind of... Because it's so... Trauma is not just, oh, that small 5%. Trauma is in a whole yeah. lot of us. Yes, yes, absolutely. Whether it's the capital T or the small T, yeah, yeah, it's it's everywhere. And so I'm glad you highlight this. And I have a chapter on trauma in the book. And that, you know, this actually, I think in working with folks in our, my program and patients, I've, you know, I, I stumble upon some analogies that seem to resonate with some people. And so one of them, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about two, just in case they're helpful for folks. One is, you know, if you think of a smoke alarm in your kitchen, it's really helpful when there's a fire, but if it's miscalibrated, mm -hmm. it's, it, it's not only less helpful, but also can be very confusing. Yeah. And so if, if you're boiling water on the stove and your smoke alarm goes off, that's not that's not going to help you <laughs> cook dinner or or know when there's actually a fire in your house. And I think of, you know, things like PTSD and other, you know, trauma related responses where we've we've learned and often this happens, you know, whether we're young or, or whenever the traumatic events happen, our brains go into these modes of like I got to protect myself. And then they get stuck in these modes when there isn't danger. Mhm. Mm and so the, and then it gets reinforced as a memory and reconsolidated every time we have that emotion or the thought that comes up and, and it just kind of re-triggers us. And that emotion comes up and we're like, yeah, you know, our brain's like, yeah, that was really bad. And it adds, a, sometimes can even add a layer of strong emotion on top of it. So it, it just kind of layers and layers and layers to the point where we're like, this is, this is, I can't touch, I can't even go near this, right? So that smoke alarm analogy uh, can be helpful for people to kind of understand it's, they may not actually be in danger right now, um, but their smoke alarm is going off their internal smoke alarm because that's what it learned to do. And it, and it's so um, hair triggered, so to speak, that they can't even look around to see and ask the, the question I have my patients ask themselves is to ground them, take some moments and whatever is helpful to ground themselves, you know, yeah. whether it's looking at an external object and grounding on that. I like, you know, I'm just looking at the pattern of a lampshade in front of me, like something very simple and often external because it's, you know, the internally, all the, the alarms are going off and then use that as a way to be able to expand their view. Cause when we're in fight or flight, we're like, I got to mm -hmm. run and just ask this question and train themselves. This isn't that's something that happens instantly, but am I actually in danger right now? And of course, if somebody's in danger, they need to do something about it. It's helpful to know that, right? But for the vast majority, when somebody's had a, a trauma, you know, a habitual trauma response, it's about kind of unlearning that habit, it's recalibrating that smoke alarm. 
And so if they ask the question, am I actually in danger right now? That can help. And then they're not, that can help them kind of see, oh, false alarm. And then maybe do some more practice therapy, whatever's helpful for them to help them start to dis, um, kind of disentangle the, you know, and recalibrate that alarm bell. One other way that I think about this, and this actually came from a converse, a live conversation in one of our, our groups uh, with somebody, he, he was in his sixties and he had had, you know, childhood trauma. And the only thing as a kid, right, not his fault, completely helpless. The only thing he could do as a kid was to worry because that's the only thing he, he could do right? because that was in his head. Nobody, you know, so that's how he kind of um, helped, I, helped himself. Let's put it that way, was that he would worry. And then he was in this habit of worrying and he'd carried that forward for 50 years, something like that. And so we talked about this in terms of like putting on some shoes, the only shoes that fit at the time. Right. And for him, it was worrying, honoring that pair of shoes, but now asking, do these shoes still fit or are they actually causing my feet pain? And for him in his sixties, the worrying, he wasn't in danger anymore, right? He hadn't been for a long time, but he could ask, oh, is this, is this worrying helping me? No. Can I honor? And it was so beautiful the way he put it. Like, can I honor my childhood self? Right, honor that part of me that was just trying to help and then let it go. It helped him let go, take off those shoes and find a new pair that helped him walk forward. That's does beautiful. That it totally does. Um, what it makes me think of is for some, it's um, like that smoke alarm going off. And for others, there's still... Um, a sense of woundedness and danger that still needs tending to. Mm -hmm. And what I'd like to do is share with you a story that really touched me and get your input on, you know, given what you've just said, because um, this is a woman with a lifelong eating disorder and mm -hmm. she's remembering this pivotal moment when she had run away and she came back and she asked her mother if she loved her. And her mother's response was, how could anyone ever love you so this is this is a um and so she this is what she writes she says it took me almost 50 years to heal the damage from all her ugly remarks recently with my therapist i related a childhood ritual of mine intending it to be amusing an anecdote to illustrate how far back my eating problems went i even laughed as i spoke point poking poking gentle fun at myself. It was only when I noticed that she was watching me with sympathy rather than amusement, I became aware of the tears on my own cheeks. And this is what I told her. From the age of five or six until I was well into my teens, whenever I had trouble sleeping, I would slip out from under the covers and steal into the kitchen for a bit of bread or cheese, which I would carry back to bed with me. There I'd pretend my hands belonged to someone else, a comforting reassuring being without a name, an angel perhaps. The right hand would feed me little bites of cheese or bread as the left hand stroked my cheeks and hair, my eyes closed. I would whisper softly to myself, there, there, go to sleep. You're safe now. Everything will be all right. I love you. Mm. And, and so I'm bringing this up because so much trauma in our 
world comes from that severed belonging, that poor attachment, and that that our way of self-soothing, as you write about, and it's like this is one of the ways of self-soothing. And the when the smoke detector goes off, it's there really is a place inside that's still not feeling uh, the love and the belonging, that there's a need for love and connection. So I'm wondering if you could speak to how, when it's that kind of severed belonging, the processes of awareness can help to change habits and find a higher reward way to go about things that actually address that. <laughs> wow, what a wonderful story and a great question. So I think there are probably 12 different ways and all probably complementary that could help with this. So let's pick one or two. So one, you know, I love that story of it, how creative the child was in in creating the angel of the the mother that wasn't the mother you know or being motherly in those moments and you know it's like what do parents do they feed their children so that they can get the calories to survive you know it's so beautiful and so you know this hand the motherly hand one holding and soothing and one feeding you know it's like providing the the physical and the emotional sustenance all in one you know and so here, so you're asking this question, well, how can how can awareness help with this? I think one piece here is to be able to see see the stories that we have come to believe where so how could anyone love you is a story that well one is it was it she's 16 you said when she ran away and, and her mom said that so, you know when she comes back, you know, it's so very impressionable, especially very probably in a very vulnerable moment. I'm guessing I'm making this all and up. And getting getting that message really all along is the yeah. point. Is, you yeah, know, sure. Since she was very so, young. And then here's the you know the the nail in the coffin of the story that then she maybe internalized. It's like, oh yeah, how can I be lovable? So there's this story, and bringing awareness in to see it as a story. I. Uh, and I, I'm thinking there's a somebody that I wrote about in the in the in the book where um he you know there's this practice of starting to see all these voices in our heads that are telling us stuff. And this is something that I learned from Thanissaro Biku, beautiful example. He calls these committee members in our heads. And so think of this as a committee member in her hand that said, You're not lovable. So every time something would trigger that, you know, like you know be like oh you're not lovable you're not. and so the story gets perpetuated and so here so kevin um had a big you know he started mapping out all of these committee members in his head on sticky notes and then and he actually posted this on my twitter account so beautiful um where he's like he mapped them all out and then next to it he took another picture where he had basically so it was like you know bad kevin shame kevin you know a terrible kevin 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 and then he named all those as voices. You know, it's like, you know, I'm, I won't put names to them in case there are people's names that are like, I don't want to be associated with that. But basically, there's this picture of it's like, it's not me, it's these voices. And so he could bring awareness in, see these as voices in his head. And with that, give him the perspective to see these are just thoughts. These are just stories. And beautifully, there was one that he just crossed out and he didn't give it a name. It was shame. And he said, 
shame doesn't get a seat at the table. Mm. Mm. And and so here, when we can see through these stories, we don't, we can let, you know, it's easier to see them as stories and not as who we are. And so that we can more easily let go of them. And so that's where I'd say one place awareness is really helpful. And And let's stay with that because it's so much a part of the teachings of awareness that if you can see the story, you're not as identified with the story. There's more freedom to realize who you really are and the deep suffering that we're yeah. really talking about in this whole process is that when we get caught in eating habits that turn us against ourselves, we end up feeling like a really small, bad self. That's our identity. And I can speak personally and say, the level of disgust I had with myself, the embarrassment, the isolation, that identity is very small and very solid. And so beginning to see the stories that perpetuate it is really powerful. Um, what I found for myself in the, that line, the issues are in the tissues, is that it wasn't enough to see the story. I couldn't see the critical voice saying, you're unlovable, you're unworthy, you're disgusting, whatever. I had to feel in my body, and this is comes back to the body, the feelings of the shame. It's like it doesn't have a seat at the table on one level, and yet it's so deep in the body. And even when we see the story as a story, we believe the body's feeling of that that yuckiness. And yes. so for me, um, you know, it's that that phrase, we're not survival of the fittest, we're survival of the nurtured, you know, Cozzolino. It, it, it took years, Judd, years of me yeah. going under the story of bad self and, you know, having my hand on my heart and feeling the pain of it, feeling yeah. how trapped I was, and finding different pathways to offering compassion, nurturing, finding other people that nurtured. It took mm -hmm. nurturing so that I really truly didn't have to believe the stories and could rest in a larger sense of identity. Yeah. So just sharing that, because I agree with you, the first step is to see that we're telling ourselves untrue. Whatever is causing suffering, we're believing something untrue. Yes. Yes. And I absolutely love, it's been so beautiful to follow the evolution of your teaching around rain and, uh, you know, with, with N being nurture as compared to non-identification, which in my opinion was really challenging to use with my patients. Like what is non-identification? And they get stuck in their heads. Whereas you're bringing in something so pragmatic around like, what are the conditions that are going to help support someone in being able to let go of a story? Nurturing, right? Just going back to the the person that you described, she didn't get the nurturing that she needed right. at those times. And so right. bringing in that nurturing now is really helpful for helping us to be able to open to our experience. And then, you know, I think of it as, I think of kindness and curiosity as these two best friends. Mm, I love you it. Know, and so kindness, nurturing is kindness, bringing kindness to ourselves is self-compassion, right? And it might be, and it's not that we have to nurture ourselves. That's another I must do, but it's yeah. really asking how can this nurturing, nurturing come to be? Yes. And so the therapist, friend, family, you know, whatever, pet, 
I have two wonderful cats. They're very nurturing. Um, (laughs) So whatever it is that helps us nurture can open the door where that kindness can call her friend curiosity and curiosity can come in and kindness says, Hey, we've opened some space for you. Can you help us explore what do these sensations feel like? And curiosity says, instead of going, Oh no, you know, this is bad. Curiosity can go, Oh, let's explore it. Cause, cause kindness is there to hold our hand when something is unpleasant and then curiosity helps us see, well, unpleasant doesn't equal bad. It just, and then we can be, well, how unpleasant is it? Oh, what's unpleasant? Oh, oh, oh. And then suddenly we're like, is vibration? Is it tingling? Is it tightness? Like, what is it? And then we get, we can get, again, when when supported with kindness, we can get super curious and be like, really? That's what I was afraid of? And then we can remember, oh, this is just our brain trying to help us survive. And it associated tightness, tension, burning, heat, but 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 with danger. And it's like, oh, this is tightness. And then, oh, I can be with this tightness because kindness is holding my hand. And curiosity is like, check this out, check this out, check this out, as compared to run away. So one of my favorite sayings, the only way out is through. Yeah, And so we can learn kindness and curiosity help us turn toward our experience and say, hey, you know, check to see if there's danger, no danger. Let's let's explore this a little bit more. Right. And then another quote that I love, what stands in the way becomes the way. Mm -hmm. And so here's something that we've been running from our whole life. Danger, danger, danger. And then we're like, oh, this can help me learn about myself. How does my mind work? And then we get to in this space, we're like, oh, this is how my mind works. And then we see how powerful we actually are instead of being driven by these impulses, these passions, these fears, these all these things that make us just, they're like, jump. And we say, how high, how quick should I run? How quickly should I run away? We can say, wait a minute. Do I need to, be, why am I listening to you? Do I need to be running away? Maybe I, maybe I could be running toward because I'm going to learn more from learning about my reactions to these sensations than running away from them. How cool is that? You're describing the the classic um, two wings of the bird. Mm -hmm. You know, in Buddhism, it's described as the two wings of awareness are mindfulness, seeing what's true, where we need curiosity and interest. That's what energizes the inquiry. And then the other wing of the bird is compassion, is that kindness that holds our hands. And that's what frees us. And those are our superpowers, as you describe in, in this book, that actually when we start activating them and applying them, uh, give us freedom. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to just carry forward on one thing you said, which I feel is so important and so misunderstood, is that when we talk about compassion, people have a very individualistic idea that compassion means I am supposed to comfort myself. I am supposed to hold myself with kindness. And I find that the times I most need to nurture, I'm in a very regressed place. And I don't feel like myself (laughs) is big enough to nurture. So it's very, uh, it feels wise and wholesome to sense what's a source beyond what I'm in this moment feeling is me, because it's only in the moment, it's just an illusion. And 
you know, it might be I sense my friend Judd, or it might be my dog, or it might be a sense of the heart of the Buddha. It doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. yeah. But when there's a sense of a larger source, it's almost like my spiritual heart can nurture my human heart. Because it's all anything I'm thinking of as outside me is actually the loving awareness that I belong to, but it's a bridge. So I want to emphasize what you said, which is nurturing can come from any source. And in many moments, it needs to be living relationships. We need each other. Yeah. And I just wanted to ask you to speak a little bit, because I, I know we don't have too much more time, mm -hmm. as to what you've noticed um, for people in terms of social support, the the difference it makes in in mm -hmm. making this less personal and feeling, you know, feeling accompanied, like it's not my fault. It's just our conditioning, that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, and just in case anybody was listening and they're like, well, there are three steps and you only talked about two. Let's use this as the segue into talking about what you're asking. So we use the social and the nurturing as this example of the third step. So the third step briefly defined is anything that helps us step out of our old habit loops, right? So we map it out in the first step. We see, oh, this is this is what's driving my eating habit, whatever it is. The second step, we ask a simple question, like, what am I getting from this, right? And feel into the body, remembering that the feeling body is much stronger than the thinking brain because it's so wise if we just, and that's how we can recalibrate and, and kind of re-engage. Re <laughs> it's like we're... Um, we're befriending ourselves again. Like, oh, this is a very wise body. You know, let's let's be friends. Talk, talk to me. <laughs> and, and it's like, thank goodness you're finally listening. And so that's the second step. The third step is learning how to step out of these old ways. And I think of this as the, the simple way that I think about this to remember it is like the big finding the bigger, better offer. And so if our brain is set up as a reward hierarchy system, let's leverage that. And so we become disenchanted with the shame, for example, or, or the story. We're like, wow, that story's just not helping me. These shoes don't fit. We can say, well, what's better? And the social, so let's talk about social connection, for example, the nurturing aspect of this. I like of this, I, I like to, one way that people can be kind of asking this question, what's better, is being able to see the difference between feeding our wants, which are these old habits, and meeting our needs, right? And so yeah. connection, social connection is, you know, if you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you look at anything, any society, any religion, any <laughs> spiritual tradition, you know, community, you know, and I love this. Um, one of my favorite quotes from the Buddhist teachings is, you know, the Ananda talking to his cousin and, and attendant, uh, I'm sorry, the Buddha talking to his cousin and attendant Ananda. And, and Ananda says, oh, isn't this great? The the holy life, you know, it's half of the holy life. And the Buddha says, don't say that. Don't say that, Ananda. The spiritual community basically is the whole of the holy life. Just emphasizing how important community is. Yeah. Just letting that sink in like community, whether it's a pet, whether it's a friend, whether it's a family member, whether it's a, you know, a, a sangha community, whatever that is for us. Just letting that like how important that is for nurturing us just for anybody watching or listening just letting that sink in mm. the whole of the whole life right? mm. and so one thing that we've built into our eat right now program we felt that this is really critical because we started it was over it was about 10 years ago that we first developed our eat right now app and i i'm 
I'm very pleased to say that it is now a CDC recognized diabetes prevention program. Mm. The only one that I know of that's like based on mindfulness. I won't go into the details of how, mm. how all of that's the awesome. fun, fun challenges that it took to get there, but yeah. you know, we can, we are very proud and, and really standing on the shoulders of many of giants of folks who did the research showing that mindfulness can really be helpful here. So in that program, as I was first designing it, I was like, we have to have a community as part of this. This isn't just going to be an app. You know, some people are that, that community is going to be within, it's going to be their pet, it's going to be their family, whatever, but we want to provide community for people to be able to share, share with each other and support each other. So we created this online community that is very active and it is, I, I hardly have to moderate it at all because the, the vibe in it is like, you know, we're here to support each other. And so, you know, like people just don't, they get in that space and they're, they're if they have some mind space that's like, rah, 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 it doesn't show up because it's just, you know, it's just like, there's this social contagion of like kindness. Mm, <laughs> which I love. Beautiful. Yeah. Mm. And so, but it's that was, so that's one piece that, you know, I can moderate that and answer questions, but really it's the peers that are helping each other. And then we have a live group every week through zoom. Um, so we'd been doing this for years now, way before anybody knew that what Zoom was. And each week we can we can come together as a community and people can share their experience and we can I, we can do inquiry. So if somebody's stuck or struggling, you know, they can do inquiry with me or Dr. Bodet, uh, Robin Bodet, who co-leads it and other folks that that lead it with me. And so I just want to highlight that because that is one, one of my favorite <laughs> times of the week is coming together in a community. And two, to just kind of, I can't even describe how wonderful it is where people are just there, like cheering each other on. Mm. You can just feel the support in this 2D. It's amazing how it like comes through a 2D interface. I mean, I'm, you know, I love having conversation with you and I'd love to do it in person, but this works pretty well too. (laughs) I know it's crazy. So just imagine that with like 200 people. And I and, and also want to give a shout out to what you all are doing because, you know, the importance of community with like Cloud Sangha is like bringing people together, even if they can't be together physically. Now we're in this virtual universe, you know, or at least part, I don't think it will ever fully become virtual, hopefully, um, but we can, we can overcome some barriers where people don't have the means to travel or not and don't live in a place where other people are so they can come together. So I just want to highlight that uh, yet again, the Buddha is right. It is the whole of the holy life. <laughs> it is so, it is. so I, powerful. And I can just vouch personally that being in different groups and working and, and working with groups of friends uh, over the years, that it's one of the most powerful ways to undo shame. And shame keeps the whole thing going as yes. we, you know, it's a loop. Yeah. If we really get it that others are struggling with the same thing and how many, it's very pervasive in the culture, it doesn't seem so much like, it, oh, it's my fault. And that is so crucial. And uh, for those of you that are listening and you want to explore uh, the hunger habit and the, the you know, it's, it's a real pro every day, there's, some, there's a way that you can deepen your attention and really change habits that have been going on for a lifetime if you want the support of community um just check on my homepage on my website for cloud sangha and there are groups that are just um around what judd is doing um this this program that you can get that kind of support 
But this this kind of leads me into a final question, Judd, and we talked about it a little before we got on, and, and it feels so important that having programs and having strategies to get help this self break a habit in a way um, distracts from the society and how our society is geared towards um, having us develop these habits of not attuning to our bodies and our hearts and getting addicted. And um, you've named some of the reasons. I mean, we see the billions going into the food industry to addict us. And in a deeper way, you know, our biggest suffering is um, not remembering our belonging to each other. And this society um, absolutely is geared towards more and more polarization and not belonging, whether it's because of all the social hierarchies that have some people higher and some lower and then create a sense of um, something is wrong with me, separation. Capitalism itself, this, this, this assumption that we're supposed to keep on growing as an economy that of course means keep on consuming, consume more. And I often think about, you know, if we didn't have such a poor attachment with Mother Earth, you know, so much fear and separation, we wouldn't be over consuming fossil fuels. We over consume. And so in a way, I just want to shift the attention to a larger society that keeps us on this very toxic track and invite your comments on that. I know it's a huge question. Sorry. <laughs> well, it, and it's an important one. And, you know, I've been trying to educate myself around all, you know, there's so many things that I don't know, and especially so many privileges and assumptions that I've grown up with just as being a, you know, cisgendered white, you know, straight male. And if we look at this, so in the, just let's, focus in on the medical industry because it's largely an industry at this point um you know this consumption assumption that you're highlighting you know that we're now waking up as a as a world and realizing you know the world is does have finite resources we can't just keep consuming um because we're going to destroy it and we're you know there we're, we're well on our way if we don't if we don't turn quickly and so I was reading this article. I'm not going to be able to pronounce this person's name, <laughs> but we can put it in the show notes. The title is Three Positions on the Fat Body, Evaluating the Ethical Shortcomings of the Obes Obesity Discourse. And I think this is important for me as a physician, but I think important for anybody uh, because the you know as medical professionals, we we get indoctrinated in, in medical school to, you know, make us try to make ourselves sound smart by like learning all these medical terms. <laughs> and so one term that I learned in medical school was obesity. And we're like, oh, it's a medical term. Well, it turns out, and there's great research that's continuing to be done on this, is that that can be extremely shaming for people where the, and there, there are a number of ways that this is done. And I, I want, I'd love for people to read this article because it really highlights them. But, you know, and you're like, well, don't use, don't use the term obesity. Let's call it clinical obesity. So we can highlight, you know, when somebody is at an unhealthy weight, you know, we're focusing on helping them be healthy. You know, it's like medicalizing it yet again. Um, so, you know, people are exploring using the term fat and it trying to make it neutral to which I, you know, it's a noble venture. <laughs> 
but how, you know, how much I still remember even as a kid around like these terms, like, you know, like fat camp and fat shaming. And so I think, um, you, and, and I think this movement, from what I understand, a lot of it, you know, you moving fat into a more of a neutral term, it's going to take time, but this is actually being led by fat people who are like, this is, you know, Hey, it's okay. Right. Um, and, but this article actually highlights some other things that I hadn't even thought about before around this you know, society placing the blame on individuals and saying, okay, you know, we're, maybe we can come up with some neutral terms. You know, it's still going to take time to come up with any neutral term uh, because that's the whole point of something stigmatizing. Um, but even then we say, well, you know, okay, whatever term we're going to come up with, you still have to change. And so there's all this bias in medicine and, and studies show this pretty clearly. The doctors judge their patients. Yeah. Whatever you want to call it, they're still judging them. Yeah. And that's problematic. And so patients come in with this shame and they're like, oh, you know, I didn't, I didn't lose weight again. Right. They don't even have to say it. Just one look from the doctor. And then whether even if it's like some, not even the look that the doctor's thinking, if they've got that story, they're going to bias and they're going to be biased and see it. Right. And they're like, oh, you know, they're fat shaming me again, or, you know, I'm a bad patient. Um, and so that's moving aside the, the question that we can all be asking, which is, hey, society, how are you helping here? Because, you know, food deserts are real. The uh, the corn subsidy that makes you know high fructose corn syrup extremely cheap is real and it's been around forever. You know how are how is society actually taking responsibility for helping society? Right. So we can be asking our Congress people and say, hey, you know, can, can you guys stop fighting for a while and like you know amongst yourselves and maybe pay attention to people that that voted you in. And we'd like to we'd like to have a conversation around, you know, all this, all the you know, who's who's who you're serving. Are you serving the lobbyists? Are you serving your constituents? And it it, you know, with that, when they when they're like, well, it's the individual's problem, they just need to use their willpower to change, you know, it dehumanizes the individual, the actual people who are suffering. And so I, I just want to highlight something. I I'm gonna read this article now. Um in an essay, there's a, I just learned about an essay um, by George Orwell that was called A Hanging. Um, and I'm just going to read from the article that this physician wrote. Um, he says, in that, in A Hanging, Orwell describes what's going on in the mind of a soldier who follows a prisoner who's about to be hanged. The man walks with a steady pace. Suddenly he does the unexpected. This is the person that's being about to die. Suddenly he does the unexpected. He steps aside to avoid a puddle. So imagine somebody walking to their death and they step aside to avoid a puddle. And here's a quote from Orwell. This is the, uh, the, the soldier's mind. It is curious, but till that moment, I had never realized what it meant to destroy a healthy, conscious man. When I saw the prisoner step aside to avoid the puddle, I saw the mystery, the unspeakable wrongness of cutting a life short when it is in full tide. This man was not dying. He was alive just as we were alive. And so, so these industries dehumanize us and get us running around in circles, you know, so much around things that don't matter where we forget the humanity 
and that we are these we are the prisoners that that the soldiers whoever you know whoever the proverbial soldier is is not seeing and so this is how important it is to remember you know that we are all human I don't know what else to say. I mean, it's just so powerful. I'm right here with you, sitting with it. The um, sense of what's not seen, you know, and how much our society is driven by forces and values that cut us off from feeling connected to each other and seeing the realness of each other. And then from that place of being cut off, we try to go for something to comfort ourselves and our society then feeds us um, addictive food. In other words, it creates the suffering and then soothes the suffering with substitutes, whether it's get more possessions, you know, win this prize, eat this food, that create more separation and suffering. And I just want to thank you so much for that that sharing because it just brings it to the heart of that this is a path of waking up to really feel our our hearts and what they really need and going for the highest level of the hierarchy that you talk about the highest reward which is the freedom to love without holding back the freedom to feel love the freedom to feel our belonging the freedom to be awake and these habits that are really conditioned by the society keep us trapped. And that's not a way of not being accountable. You know, we can feel empowered because there are things, ways we can train our hearts and minds, but not to take the blame off of society. Society, we need to change our society too. Yeah. And, and I would just add to that, the more we learn how our minds work and the more we learn to work with our minds, the more we can repurpose that energy of shame, of blame, of guilt, of feeling something, of, of holding that huge boulder of a story of there's something wrong with me, and we can repurpose that energy towards social change. And we can That's all band right. together and we can see that love is so, so much more powerful than hate or selfishness or whatever. And we can band together and actually make that change happen. That's exactly right. Because right now we're talking about the particulars of the habits of eating, but it could be the habits of making others wrong mm -hmm. and the habits of identifying with, you know, in a polarized way, any of these habits that if we can work with our own hearts and minds, we can start stepping out of them. So. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. There's a, it reminds me of a quote from Martin Luther King Jr. in uh, I don't know if his Christmas sermon or something where he says, "And we, we, you know, despite your hate, we will love you no matter what, and we will win a double victory, ah. a double victory." <laughs> Those are words to end on. Thank you so much, Judd. Um, again, the hunger habit—it's um, going to be out the end of this month, and you will find, as I did, a huge amount. Uh, for life-changing understandings and practices. So, blessings. Thank yeah. you. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.